Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day, still recovering from my slight panic when someone asked me a question about football finances on social media. And he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I mean, what's, what was going on? People we wanted to see my spreadsheets next. It, it, it was, uh, I, I could tell from your furrowed brow at the time. Um, fortunately, it was it was pancake day and we were more concentrating <laughs> on uh, on lemon Lemon and icing sugar, or le- sorry, lemon and uh, caster sugar, versus the that the Baroness had banana chocolate spread and ice cream on hers, Kevin. That's shocking. On her pancakes? On a, well, yes. <laughs> Good, OK, let's just... <laughs> let's, let's set the bar low before we even start, Kieran, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm not mucking about with pancakes. We, 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 we had a falling out last year when I tried Marmite peanut butter on pancakes. Ali's a... Ali suggested that her pancakes were nice enough without me putting. Uh, this conversation can only go down a cul-de-sac here, so let's move on with the show. Um, later in the show, we'll be hearing from James Grimes, a uh, former gambling addict and now a senior programme manager at Gambling With Lives, a charity established by the families of young people who took their own lives as a result of betting issues. Um, I think, Kieran, I know I say this after virtually every interview we do but it, this was a not harrowing it was very, it was a brilliant interview but i think it's one of the most important interviews we've done as and i hope people will will understand why when we get to hear it it's it's a must listen isn't it absolutely yeah uh, but before that again we have to deal with the news and there's plenty of it and our first news story we spoke last week about jim parmenter the angry owner of dover athletic and now his angry words have turned into angry actions and more angry words. Yes, uh, Jim is clearly unhappy with the responses that he's been getting from the National League. So he's uh, he says we're not going to play football. We're gonna we're gonna put the players onto furlough. Uh, we're going to try to keep the club in hibernation because I want there to be a Dover Athletic Football Club in in one year's time, in three years' time, in five years' time. Uh, I mean, I, I, I went on to Company's House, so, the, so uh, as you know, is my want. Uh, Dover lost half a million quid in 2019, which was pre-pandemic. So I, I would hate to think how large the losses were during uh, the close down. Uh, the shareholders have put two million quid into the club. So it's not a case of that you know, they've been trying to run it on a shoestring. You know, people, people such as the owner has been very generous over the past few years, but they've reached a stage where enough is enough. Um, and I know the cynics will say, well, hold on, you know, Dover Athletic are the bottom of the table. They've got nothing to play for. He's he's trying to, there's self-interest operating here. But for all we know, it could be that the tables could be decided on points per game and they'll get relegated yeah, anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you know, what, why are clubs in the National League playing football? I think that's the question that we, that we need to ask ourselves. And uh, l- last night, Darlington effectively took the same step. They... 
they've been in administration three times. And you know, I, I can remember going to Darlington when they were in a football league club and, you know, going to Feetums. And it was a it was a good day out, like so many of these towns and cities are, which, which otherwise you'd never see. You know, unless you're a football fan, you'd never... Uh, never visit them. So it was a great chance to go out and see somewhere new. Um, the owners have said, we don't want to give the club a debt burden because we've been in uh, administration. And again, they're, they're towards the bottom of the table. They've only actually played 11 matches all season. So you know, how on earth they were going to fit in the best part of another 30 games before the end of the season was was a logistical nightmare. Um, and, and you, But you can see, and it's not just these two clubs, it's, it's other clubs who are also saying, We've got to take a look at the long-term interest. Football, at that level, is it important? Mm. Is that a rhetorical question? Well, I don't think it is in, in terms of what what should we be concentrating on in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we want these clubs to exist. We want them to survive. Mm. Playing matches in front, of, in front of nobody to be seen by two men and a dog on a on a pretty dodgy stream at best, uh, is just increasing the losses. Uh, the, the National League are coming out of this with very little credit because it, it, they, they are supposed to show leadership and mm. and it's a void at present. And, and basically what Jim Palmer is saying, very simply, saying it's the National League under government, you give us the money and we'll play football. That In the meantime, we're not going to bankrupt ourselves by playing football for, as you say, no apparent reason. Yeah, it, um, it, it's cheaper to put the to, to to give the clubs grants to see out the rest of the season than to stop playing football and put everybody on furlough. So surely from a from an exchequer point of view, they've got to see the sense here as well. Well Barrow have furloughed some of their players too, but it it just strikes me, Kieran, is it not quite late in the day to start the furlough process? Because it looks like we're finally coming out of this. And the furlough process will probably be ending very shortly anyway. Well, 58 uh, EFL clubs have taken furlough out of the 72. And, and I think the EFL is, is a completely different beast to the the Premier League. So when the likes of Liverpool and Spurs initially took the furlough, there was a backlash from fans. There was also a backlash from politicians. But I think the reaction to, to EFL clubs, whose whose finances are, are far uh, far more modest than those of the Premier League is is different. I, I think Barrow here are, are skating on thin ice because what they've actually done is to say we've got half a dozen players who realistically are not going to get a match for the rest of the season, mm-hmm. and they've just gone out and signed nine players in the January window. So, so this one it, it looks as if they that Barrow are are utilising the taxpayer as a means of uh, continuing the season with an improved squad. But those players who are not part of the manager's plans are effectively being told, just go, just spend your time at home. Now, this is discretionary. You know, the, the, the players have to agree to it. Um, and, and the club, to, to, in, to its credit, have said, you, know, you will not be worse off financially. So we will top up your wages. Uh, you know, under the furlough scheme, the government pays 80% of, of the first £2,500 per month. But it, it's one of those areas where I think well, this was not the intention of the, the job retention scheme because you know the key word's mm. there, job retention. These yeah. are people who uh, Barrow Football Club effectively said, we have no future with these players. 
but we are now going to use government cash or taxpayer cash as, as a means of uh, being able to, to pay them and improve the club's finances. There's a furlough theme developing. Uh, oh, I was going to say that's alliteration, but only in a London accent, isn't it? It's, <laughs> <laughs> technically, it's a furlough theme. There's a furlough theme developing here, everybody. Uh, Wrexham players and staff who received reduced wages while on furlough will get any money they lost back from new owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Rodney Reynolds. Yeah, I, I think uh, McElhenney and Rodney uh, have really knocked it out of the park in terms of, of public relations since they, they first became involved with Wrexham Football Club. Um, in, in the autumn, you know, Wrexham is part of the National League. Uh, players did go on furlough, as did other members of staff. They they ended up, some of them ended up financially worse off. Some took pay cuts and things of this nature. Uh, and McElhenney and Rhett Reynolds have come in and said, we recognise the, the, the sacrifices you made at a time when we were not involved with the club. So you know, this this was pre the takeover, but we want to 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 acknowledge what what you've done, and in the spirit of goodwill, um, they they are going to make up the balance in, in terms of the, the money that uh, that staff members have lost uh, prior to to these two gents taking over the club, and, and you know, as a gesture, it, it's uh, first of all, I'm sure it's appreciated, but it. it it, it, it's a positive. It, again, we, we speak so often about there are many things which make you proud to be connected to football. And I think in the last 24 hours, we've seen the actions of Lou Macari in, in terms of homelessness in the Stoke area. And it, it just, just makes you smile and remember why you love the game and the sport and so many of the people attached to it. And also, from a, from a Wrexham fan's point of view, it, it gives a reassurance as to the reasons why those men have taken over the club, doesn't it? That these people are clearly not in there as asset strippers. These people are clearly understanding what football means to a community. Yes, yes. And, and, and you've got to give them a lot of credit because, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not the glamorous part of football as we know, but they, they've approached it with a smile and, and they've done their due diligence. Um, and yeah, certainly they've invested £2 million into the club, which they've said, you know, we're not going to go, we're not going to be Abramovich. We're not going to go on a, on a wages spree. We're looking for sustainability. Um, but they, they appear to, to get football. And that's fantastic to hear. Yes, for any new listeners, I should explain the Rodney reference. Basically, Kieran has been cock-a-hoop since he discovered at Company's House that the gorgeous millionaire Ryan Reynolds' middle name is Rodney, which Kieran seems to think <laughs> Kieran seems to think he'd rather not be a gorgeous millionaire than be called Rodney, to be honest. <laughs> uh, and also, I'm just making a note to myself, don't use the expression cock-a-hoop anymore in front of Kieran. Uh, Chelsea. Chelsea will pay Frank Lampard £1.8 million between now and June unless he takes another job as manager, which is yet another reason, optimistic Palace fans, why I don't think we should expect him at Solos Park any time in the near future. Yes, uh, so it, it looks as if uh, Frank Lampard has been put on some form of gardening leave by the club. Uh, it, you know, £1.8 million to, to, you know, to, to, to listen to our podcast, really, for the next uh, <laughs> 16 weeks is, uh, is something that even I'd be prepared to do. Um, <laughs> So well, it's, uh, it, it's basically that's what guy gets for listening to it, basically, isn't he? <laughs> <That's> fair enough. <laughs> so, so you know, Frank Lampard, uh, you know, he he was uh, he was well thought of at, uh, at Derby County. Um, uh, he's uh, he, he made an impact, I think, at at Chelsea, and, and clearly it didn't work out in the end. 
but his name has been linked with with uh, clubs such as Celtic and you know, potentially Palace. Although you know, both of those clubs, of course, do have existing managers. Although uh, is is it right that that uh, that Roy's uh, contract expires in the summer, the same as Neil Lennon? Is that right? Uh, yes, the two the two are not linked, but I think for the benefit of all concerned, Roy's contract does expire this summer, along with twelve of the players. Yes, yeah, so I, most Palace fans are working on the assumption that we will be looking for a new manager um, in the near future, certainly. Right, right. Well, you know, under those circumstances, what what would you do if if you were Frank Lampard? You know, it's a uh, uh, it's it's a lot of money to forego, unless of course a, a club comes in with. Uh, with an offer which is financially advantageous to him. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably go to Antigua, somewhere like that, if I was Frank Lampard. I think it, there's a bit of a problem with that at present. Well, yeah, well, of course, when this is all over, Kieran. <laughs> I can't see any circumstances which I'll be going to Antigua in the next five years. But, yeah, I've got an imagination. Uh, well, I'll tell you where we are going, Kieran. My God, that was a that was a one-show link. <laughs> uh, and there's, see, subconsciously, Frank Lampard and one show. See, um, I'll, tell you where, I'll tell you where we're going right now, Kieran. We're going to Scotland. And Greenock Morton, whose fans are close to buying the club but may not get hold of the ground, Capilo. Yes, I mean, I mean at Greenock Morton, um, there, there is a fans group called MCT, which stands for Morton Club Together, and they they now actually own fifty eight percent of the shares, so they've got control of the club. Um, I, I went through the list of shareholders of Greenock Morton, which, which I think ran to fourteen pages, uh, but uh, but by the time I'd added them all up on my spreadsheet, they were around about fifty eight percent of the total. So they so they do it was the minutes flew by when I was doing that as you can imagine. Um so so they they bought the club from uh, a a company called Golden Casket. Um nice. so I I had to check that because I, I used to teach in Frankfurt and and there was a nightclub of a similar name <laughs> um which which I used to go to when I was bored. <laughs> Yeah, I've done with this spreadsheet now. I'll just pop down a golden casket just before clo- just just get one in before closing time. That's right. Um, and and the golden casket still owns Capilo, which is the, oh, okay. the, the Greenock Morton Stadium. Now, the present agreement is that uh, they're only charging a peppercorn rent uh, to to the the fans group. So. The, the previous owners, you know, they, they're not particularly fussed about it. Um, and there's a £2 million debt hanging over the, the, the ownership of Capilo. It now transpires that the fans group is thinking of buying the stadium. And if so, it will end up inheriting that debt. So things start to get messy because... That MCT have said, well, if if we do acquire the stadium, of course, that gives us control over it in terms of you know, developing it, expanding the infrastructure, being able to use it for for multifunction purposes without having to ask the landlord's permission and things of that nature. But it will come with that two million pounds debt. Golden Casket have said we're not going to ask for that two million pounds. Um, unless the club goes into liquidation and the, the only or, or, or to administration, and the only reason why that will be the case is, is if MCT have have struggles themselves. So it, it gets very complicated, um, and it, it now appears that the club is, or rather MCT, are going to. And this is where I like the democratization of fan-owned clubs. They're going to say, "Well, we've got a choice. We can either 
carry on as tenants or we can acquire the stadium and the consequences that go along with it. Uh, but we're going to let the fans make that final decision. Mm. So I was slightly distracted at the end. I was wondering what would happen if you accidentally wandered into the golden casket in Frankfurt and asked the barman where the gents was. Um, uh, and still in Scotland, there are some musical chairs going on at Falkirk, um, whose stadium is the loved... I love this name of Falkirk Stadium, Brockville, which is a great name for the stadium. Oh, it's the Falkirk Stadium now, unfortunately, but it used to be Brockville, which I like. It used to be Randyford Park back in the day, which is an even better name. But yes, so musical chairs are going on at Falkirk, as Guy said. Yes, uh, Falkirk uh, has been seeking investment, has been seeking a new owner for some time. In um, in 2019, the the purpose, sorry, the, the the person involved with a potential takeover was a guy called Mark Campbell. Uh, he, he subsequently turned up claiming he wanted to buy Sunderland, uh, and that fizzled out. So it it could be that he uh, you know he is a tire kicker. You know, he, he likes to go around clubs to have a, have a to see what's on offer, to you know, perhaps to see whether there is value in them, um, but uh, you know that deal's not gone through. They've now got the the, the French guy in charge, um, and, and then um, rumor started to circulate about a couple of American investors. And uh, over, over the course of the last week or two, there's been 15 documents lodged at Company's House. You know, again, that that gets me giddy with excitement, as, as we know. And uh, so we've now got two American investors who have taken over the, cu- the, the club, um, and they put in three hundred and forty grand, which is which is great again in terms of helping the clubs to survive. I think there are certainly issues in Scottish football, uh, apart from a, a handful of clubs. The, the majority of them are are very much sort of hunkering down uh, and are needing financial support. Um, but it, it does look that like they've got so you know potentially a positive future here, and it's and it's good to see people coming in. Uh, and putting their money where their mouth is. Hmm. The Merseyside Derby is approaching. I said Derby. Um, uh, I just realised that the Merseyside Derby is approaching, which is a small matter, of course, compared to Palace Brighton. But there's some good news already for Everton fans this week. Yes, this, this is in respect of uh, Bramley Moor Dock. Uh, th- this is the the site that the club wants in terms of uh, moving to a new stadium. Uh, you know, and I'm. You know, I'm, I'm the same as you, Kevin. I've I've been to to Goodison as a away fan. I think my first trip was you know, 80, 81 or sometime like that. And you know, it, it, it's not changed much since then. And that that's both good and bad. Uh, you know, when when you're six foot three like me, it's it's not particularly good because you can't sit down. But that that smell, you know, it, that 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 football ground smell, which we all remember from from being a kid that's still there and, and the and the memories and, and the history and the heritage but you know while, whilst that's that's great uh, from from a romantic point of view it means that everton is is really significantly behind when it comes to generating money from ticket sales um so bramley moor dock uh, a, a council report was was uh, commissioned and and that has uh, that's given the green light to the, the stadium, which will have a capacity of 52,000. It will then go to a formal council vote on the 23rd of February. But normally, unless there are uh, individual councillors with a big axe to grind, um, you know, that this should now be approved. And then it will have to go to government approval. So, so those are all the positives. Mm. There's a missing issue. It's going to cost 500 million quid. Whoa. Exactly. Woo is the word. And where is that money coming from? 
So you know, we do have a very wealthy owner in, in Farhad Mashiri. Um, he does have uh, business connections historically with uh, uh, with with, with uh, Ashimov, who was involved at Arsenal and who is uh, sponsoring the uh, training ground and the women's team sponsorship, uh, shirt sponsorship, and also this this strange arrangement where uh, his company has has the option to name the stadium. Mm. Um, so I, I think that banks would be a bit twitchy at lending £500 million as far as the, the stadium is concerned. The council had said that they would act effectively as the guarantor of any borrowings, but I'm not sure that that will go down well necessarily with local taxpayers uh, if, or, or, the, or, the, or the council will act as an intermediary in terms of borrowing. So there seems to be a, a few things sort of on, on the back burner here. Um, but you know, it, would, it would be great to me yeah, if, if anybody's seen the, uh, the, the architect's drawings. It looks absolutely mm. sensational development. Um, and it will be used you know, for you know, the, the usual suspects, concerts, weddings, funerals, conferences, you know, all, all that type of stuff. They want it to, to, to form a sort of a hub of, of one of these sort of areas. So there'll be retail developments, there'll be housing as well. And, and it is, uh, you know, there are areas of Merseyside which suffer from social deprivation. As, as you know, I teach there myself and, and yeah. Liverpool is, uh, Liverpool's just a great city. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing city to be a student. It's an amazing city to work. But at, at the same time, there are, yeah, there, there are aspects of it which need improving. So, so this could potentially help there as well. Although, to their enormous credit, as part of their, I think, 10-year plan, they called it, Everton have said that they will continue to invest in the area around Goodison Park long after they've gone, which is very good because it's an area that needs investment. When you say lenders are twitchy, Kieran, is, is that simply because of the amount involved, £500 million, pounds, or are, are there other reasons they might be twitchy? Um, lenders aren't don't tend to be too bothered about amounts because they they will often uh, they will often form consortiums themselves. So you know, right, there okay, could yeah. be a group of lenders. Um, lenders are always concerned about the ability to repay. You know, so five hundred million pounds is a lot of money. Uh, is that a problem? Whilst you're in the Premier League, it isn't. Yeah, we're fully aware that Everton have not you know never been relegated, so that shouldn't be an issue. Um, but you know some of the the peripheral uh, things which are impacting upon football at present. So you know there, there's still more talk about uh, there's there's been some talk in the European Club Association today uh, from from Agnelli and Juventus again saying all uh, all European leagues should be reduced to eighteen teams. Well, if you're a club such as Everton who who aren't getting into the Champions League. All of a sudden, you're going from 38 matches a season to 34. If you're not getting into one of the the peripheral competitions in in Europe, and they don't tend to be lucrative anyway, um, you know, you've got 17 home matches a season. The Carabao Cup is probably going to go. The FA Cup uh, is, is going to you know, be no replays. All, all of this has an impact upon those clubs. Such I would say the 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 below the yeah the just below the 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 rich six brigade and I'd say here we're looking at Everton Leicester West Ham Newcastle Villa Leeds clubs of that nature yeah who want to to break through that glass ceiling and this is putting more and more uh, more and more uh, space between them 
which is, of course, the aim of the rich clubs. It's, it's to make sure that there's less competition in the Premier League. Mm. Um, but if, if, if there's fewer matches taking place, then that's fewer opportunities to generate the revenue to repay uh, th- these loans. Huddersfield fans have bought 11,000 season tickets for 2021 despite COVID to help the club with cash flow. Now, producer Guy actually wrote season cards rather than season tickets, to which I actually wrote back, do we live in America, Guy? Do we? It's season tickets. Um, I think this is a good news story, Kieran, but uh, quite a few fans, it's not just Huddersfield, quite a few fans have bought uh, their tickets, season tickets in advance and they're now going through the process of getting them refunded, aren't they? Yes, um, I think you've got to look at the terms and conditions of individual deals by by individual clubs. Uh, I think, as part of the uh, the commitment, the first of all, yeah, this is this is for Championship football. Uh, the the uh, the tickets were priced at two hundred and forty nine pounds, which is right. you know, pretty damn good value for for twenty three yeah, matches. Yeah, um, and and if you and if you did buy one this season. Um, the the club guaranteed no price rises for a further three years. So, you know, Huddersfield could bounce back into the Premier League. They'd be paying £249. So, you know, it, it is quite a good deal. Um, I've not managed to get the, the full uh, analysis of the small print, but I think that if the matches weren't taking place, you automatically got a uh, uh, clearly access to iFollow and things of that nature. So and, and that could be for both home and away. So you know it worked out as as a reasonable price, but uh, you know the fact that eleven thousand people, you know, last last autumn when there was so much uncertainty with yeah, regards yeah. to are we going to see football? We're we not going to see football. It could be two thousand of us. Uh, I think it just shows the love that fans give to a club when they know that it's in financial straits. Mm. And on a similar note, Oldham are offering refunds to fans who bought season tickets, which is good, but not the full amount, which is less so. Yes, um, Oldham have a bit of a an issue in terms of the relationship between the executives of the club and, and a significant amount of the fan base. Uh, there's not a lot of transparency. There's not a lot of communication coming out. Uh, that one of the fan groups uh, offered my services to to take a look at the accounts, and I say I'll do this from a com- completely neutral perspective. You know, I wouldn't charge a penny, of course. You know, I'm a football fan first and foremost, and and the club said no, we don't want any of that. You know, we, uh, we, okay. we, we never heard of him, which is fine. Uh, you know, he, he claims to be an accountant; he could be a turf accountant for all we know. Yeah, you know, we, we, we're not. Uh, we, we we don't we don't want anybody looking at the numbers. Uh, um, unless uh, you know, we, we effectively have control of the operations. So I, th- I felt that was a bit disappointing because all the fans want to know is, is that they want a degree of certainty. So yeah. in, in respect of uh, what was happening on Oldham, that their season tickets were priced at uh, £270. And again, you're buying blind to a certain extent. And what the club have now said is that if you did buy a season ticket – uh, we're going to take away £10 per match because you were able to see us play the home games using iFollow. Um, and, and iFollow, you know, it has been a, a fair money spinner uh, for, for EFL club fans. And uh, you've got to give credit to all the parties there. Lots of the fans know that they, it, it's a it's a pretty mediocre product, but it's least at least it's an opportunity to see the club that we love. And it's a chance of getting money into them. 
Um, but I, th- I think the thing which which grates with quite a few people is you know, some people don't have particularly good or any uh, internet access, so therefore I follow sort of no use to them. You know, they, they might be older or firm. They might not have great eyesight, so watching it on a small screen isn't necessarily what you want to get into in terms of football. And, and Oldham have said, well, we're going to take away £10 per match from the £270 for your season ticket. That leaves 40 quid, um, and we're not going to give that 40 quid until uh, a minimum of the end of May. Right. So... I think the club's coming out of this not particularly well, certainly in terms of public relations. I'm fully aware that you know the, the clubs have cash flow issues themselves, but if they are going to do things of this nature, you've got to be upfront with the fans. And Oldham have not been uh, in this particular circumstances. Yeah, my guess, Kieran, is that they very much have heard of you, and that's why they don't want you looking at the books. Basically, if if they had, if they generally did, hadn't heard of you, if it was me, they'd go, I don't know, he can have a look, or no, not letting Detective Maguire anywhere near. Anyway, two positive stories to end on, Kieran, before our big interview, and the first is that former Stoke and Burnley forward John Waters has thrown his hat into the ring for the chief executive job at the PFA, and why not? I say. Yes, so this is uh, it, it, this is replacing Gordon Taylor, uh, who is the present uh, chief executive. So, so John Walters, who I, I think he's been very open about some of his personal problems uh, as as a professional footballer, and uh, you know the, the the challenges that that brings. Um, and he says he he wants to help. Uh, Fellow players who have been through similar circumstances to himself, so so he's uh, he, he's put his name forwards. Um, the, the present chairman of the uh, PFA, Ben Perkis, uh, is also uh, putting his name forwards, and and this has uh, this this has resulted in what uh, John Walters describes as a frank exchange of views between the two <laughs> gentlemen involved. <laughs> So it was, uh, you know, it's a bit like that discussion we had as to who was the hardest Teletubby, and, and that got that got pretty feisty, as, as you probably remember, Kevin. Indeed. Uh, it, it, yeah. um, so uh, you know, John Walters is claiming that uh, there was some form of gentleman's agreement that anybody who was already in a senior executive position at the PFA wouldn't put their name forwards to to be uh, the chief executive. Yeah, with Ben Perkis being the chairman, you know, we don't know what's been said, uh, but uh, it, it does appear to be uh, you know, not, not particularly harmonious at present uh, in the PFA. Um, John Walters has praised Gordon Taylor. He said he was responsible for, for overturning the, uh, the, the salary cap. Uh, at the EFL, though yeah, I think our money was on Nick DeMarco uh, having having yeah, a, a hand in that yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm 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 still I'm still shaking with uh, yeah, sort of in awe of of somebody as as smart as Nick Nick DeMarco talking to me. Um, uh, you know, he I thought he was incredible on the show the other day. Um, so so that's where we are. So it looks like there are two potential people, uh, and and it will go down to a vote of the members. Uh, but it's an issue which which really needs to be resolved as quickly as possible. Hi, I'm Steve Lamarck, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, 
or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Yeah, I'm going to say this only once more, Kieran. In terms of the people inside the Teletubbies, Tinky Winky was the hardest by a country mile. Right? <laughs> uh, you can you can get Nick DeMarco to take me to any court in the land. I will stand by that. Uh, finally, Kieran, um, and bear with me here, please, Kieran. Uh, there's a wonderful account by soldiers of the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry who took Pegasus Bridge the night before D-Day uh, and were told to hold until relieved and... The next morning, exhausted and nearly overwhelmed, they tell how they hear the faint sound of bagpipes in the distance as Lord Lovett's commandos came to relieve them. It's a very emotional story. And this story may just be the faint sound of bagpipes for football in the distance, Kieran, because the FA Cup and Carabao Cup finals may just may see fans inside Wembley. Yes, this is, uh, you know, this is, Fingers crossed it won't be full capacity or anything of this nature, uh, but there are whispers, and and that's where we are at present, that uh, when we start to come out of lockdown, and it will be gradual, uh, it will be a gradual process, um, the the government is looking for some showpiece events, um, and the Carabao Cup and the FA Cup which will be taking place in, you know, I think it's the first one's around about the 25th of May, and then the FA Cup's three weeks later, are being lined up. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would just be absolutely delighted. I, mean, I, I don't know, I'm sure you've watched some of the Test matches as well, where England got slaughtered uh, over the course yeah. of the past few days. But they were, yeah, yeah. there was a crowd there, and there it was a completely different sport. It was, it was brilliant, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if this can be the case, and they are successful then you know next season things will be you know, looking much more positive um and, and there's also talk of uh euro 2020 it, it could be that more of the games will be taking place in england because uh you know the vaccination program yeah. has exceeded uh, all expectations and you know I, i've got friends in the nhs and i'm sure you have as well the the, the job that they have done to date uh, in getting so many people vaccinated has been yeah, uh, stupendous um, so it, it could be that uh, you know, if, if the if the UK is, is ahead of the rest of Europe in terms of vaccinations, that we could be of a significant number of matches taking place uh, here in England uh, and with some fans attending as well. Wouldn't that be wonderful, Kieran? They may only be whispers, but I will take whispers as we as we speak at the moment. Kieran, it's interview time, and as you know, we try to inject a little humour into our interviews if we can. But I don't know if that was possible when we spoke to James Grimes, who's senior programme manager at Gambling With Lives, a charity established by the family of young people who took their own lives as a result of betting issues. And we spoke to James to find out about the relationship between football and gambling. James, thank you for joining us. Before we talk about gambling in football, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your own experience? Of course, yeah. Um, I started gambling like many, really, as as a teenager. I was sixteen years old, and I was a massive football fan. And I used to believe the adverts when they said things like "It matters more when there's money on it," and Ray Winston telling you to bet in play now. And I thought that it was something that went hand in hand with football. So I started gambling 
quite often. And then I realized that I was at the bookies when my friends weren't coming with me anymore. And it was starting to become a problem pretty early into my teenage years, to be honest. And um, it very rapidly escalated from that small, casual five pound accumulator that a lot of people will be um, aware of to me playing roulette on my phone in bed at night and choosing to play casino games instead of going out socializing and stuff. And that was before I was real legal age to actually use online gambling. And the minute I had access to that, it completely overwhelmed me, to be honest. I probably shouldn't say this, but I remembered how amazing it was that I could bet on any sport anywhere in the world because that's what my brain was screaming out for me to do. It was telling me to gamble whenever, wherever, wherever and whenever I could. And this thing in my pocket allowed me to do that. Um, it really did um, take hold very quickly. I, My university was a complete blur, to be honest. I spent most of it in bed gambling and worrying about debts. And for, for 12 years of my life, it was an overwhelming addiction that didn't just take money away from it, from me, it took so much more to be honest and as people out there that struggle with gambling will know it's it's the detrimental effect 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 it has on your on your mental health on your relationships on your career prospects you know I was I was like a UEFA B licensed football coach and I was really motivated a hundred things I wanted to do before I was 30 on my wall and gambling literally and metaphorically stripped all those things away from me um and yeah, I, I sometimes forget how bad it was, I think, because I've come quite desensitized to it. But yeah, I'm now nearly three years without a bet. And I can say that life is infinitely better, but I know there's a lot of people out there still struggling. And I just know how hard that was for me and how hard it is for them now. Well, do you know what? On a personal level, uh, James, I wasn't going to say this, but I think you've touched on part of the problem because I have friends. I think we probably all have a lot of us listening to this. And we, we laugh about the fact, I mean, he would he would turn up before Palace games and, and he would have been, because he, he works shifts, but and, but we would laugh about the fact that he'd put money on a Uruguayan tennis match at three o'clock in the morning. And we shouldn't have been laughing about that. We should have been saying to him, mate, as it occurred to you, you've got a problem. And that's, I think that's part of the issue, isn't it? That we all kind of refuse to accept that an addiction is happening around us, don't we? Yeah, definitely. I think there's, I got a lot from friends over the years was, was, oh, it's just James, he likes a bet. And I think that narrative is is still there now. I don't think gambling addiction is seen in the same light. I don't think quite bluntly that people realise that it's got a suicide risk attached to it. And I, I, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that bet on Uruguayan tennis who don't resort to suicidal thoughts, obviously. But I think the the narrative is that gambling is this legitimate leisure activity that's completely normalized in society. And so people don't see those warning signs. And when they did, for me, it was way too late. Like friends tried to intervene and I would just squirm in denial basically and be like, no, I just, I've got it in control. I know how to bet on football when really I was just deeply addicted. Jane, my generation grew up with images of footballers on team coaches playing cards on their way to Wembley. So it's always been an issue in football, but can you give us an idea of the scale of gambling in professional football now? Yeah, I mean, the environment that 
footballers playing does obviously not help that. I, I know we've had recent examples as as well uh, in, with integrity matters like Kieran Trippier, but I think yeah. it's um, it's it's a real hidden problem in football because most footballers are bound by contracts and financial commitments that unfortunately are tied in with gambling companies. So it will take quite a lot to have to have people that come out and stand up, stand up against gambling companies and to be honest about what it's doing to people in the changing room. And it is, it is quite shocking that there's probably only five or six footballers that you can think of that have been open with gambling addiction, because as you said yourself there, there's it's, it's obviously rife. And, outside of the dressing room it's rife amongst fans You've, mm. we've got a generation of young football fans that think they have to have a bet on to watch the football it's become that normalized and i i dread to think to be completely honest what the what the long-term impact is if this is going to be i i don't think we've seen the, the damage it's going to cause just yet and, and presumably as well because those days of football card schools are long gone i guess and gambling for the players is now a solitary activity, isn't it? It's something they do on their own in the corner on their phone. So it's difficult for other people to pick up on whether they've got a problem in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think as well, like there's a difference between playing card games with your mates and having a bet on the pools and having an accumulator once a week to play in highly addictive casino games and and products that are associated with so much harm that, as I said, are in your pocket. We essentially have a super casino in our pockets without really any restrictions. And if you don't understand the risks involved and if you don't have that awareness and you're you you know you're drawn in by the offers and the free bets and the bonuses, it's a pretty perfect storm for, for addiction. And footballers feel that uh, probably just as much as, as anybody. We had Dean Hammond on our show last week. He was recently retired from football. He played for Southampton, Leicester and Brighton. And he was telling us that young players are given virtually no help in managing their finances on any level. So presumably they're not being warned or even advised about gambling. When they suddenly start earning all this money, there's no one around to tell them the pitfalls. No, I listened to the episode with Dean. I thought it was really insightful. It's an angle that I've not thought about before as a fan that, you know, we, we just, I think you mentioned in the podcast yourself, Kevin, that we see footballers on this pedestal, really, that we think everything's going to be all right. They're, they're fine. They're just footballers. But, you know, that they're, they're in precarious financial situations when it stops. And taking it back to gambling, I, I'm, I know there are companies out there that deliver awareness uh, sessions, but I don't think it tackles the sheer um, presence of, of the environment that they play in. What good is it really telling people to gamble responsibly when you've got gambling adverts flashing around the pitch and they're running out on a Saturday with a gambling brand on their shirt? I think there's a, there's a level of hypocrisy there and it's, you know that, that that we need to get to that moment where where footballers aren't playing in, a, in an environment that's facilitating addiction so much. We'll we'll talk about this a little later in the interview, but don't get me started on when the fun stops because anybody who's been around people who have gambling problems know that there's no fun involved. The fun has long gone out of gambling. I mean, I, I you talk about that route. I mean, I I limit myself. I love horse racing, and I will bet ten pound a week, and I get nervous about losing that. I I don't allow myself anything on my phone because I know what will happen. But it's not just young players either, is it, James? Because Andros Townsend last year was honest enough to admit that he lost thousands in one night and he's a mature, sensible player in his in his early 30s. So it's not just kids, is it? No, not at all. I think 
one thing I've learned uh, more broadly since I've been in the, the field of recovery and the gambling space is that this genuinely can happen to anyone. It's not about protecting vulnerable people, so to speak. I think anyone is vulnerable to gambling addiction when we have the, this thing in our pocket that's so easy to use. And I heard Andros Townsend and Stephen Corker both talk so openly about their addiction. And, and for the first time, actually, they started to mention the role of the gambling industry. They started mm, yeah. to talk about how they preyed on their VIP status, for example, which is good. We need more footballers to be um, open as possible about that. Well, I thought it was very interesting as well because Andros stressed that alcohol wasn't involved. He he put it down to boredom mainly, but is alcohol a contributing factor, do you think? Um, that's an interesting question. For me, it wasn't. I mean, um, I I would gamble the minute I would wake up. I didn't need any extra uh, incentive to do so. I think um, I, I, there are examples where gambling is pushed in environments which involve drinking, which you could argue is irresponsible in itself. But for a lot of people uh, that struggle with gambling, there isn't that comorbidity. It's just this this single issue. That's obviously not always the case, but it's it's the power that uh, gambling has that you don't really have much time or or money, quite frankly, for, mm. for other things as well. Is this exclusively a male problem, James? Not at all. Um once again, going back to people that I've met in this space, um, we, we meet so many brave women that um, have struggled with gambling. That the, This is a stereotype in itself, but the thing that draws them in is not necessarily what draws the men in via football and uh, that culture of betting around that. But we have a situation where Loose Women is sponsored by an online bingo company and the Bake Off, I think, was sponsored by an online bingo company so it's not exclusively a male problem and and also unfortunately it's women that take the brunt of the effect of other gamblers so it's estimated that there's up to 10 um, people affected by somebody else's gambling and the vast majority of that are unfortunately women and you know I look back at and cringe how I treated my mum quite frankly and um, yeah I, I know that it's not exclusively a problem for men. As well I mean you talk about this terrible terrible figure 500 young people taking their own lives a year uh, but it's not just them it's the impact that has on families and communities as well it's it's so where's where's the pfa in all this in in football james what where is the safeguards i mean in any other industry young people are looked after safeguarded where is the pfa in this i think they they're not there to be quite honest i didn't get uh, I'm not a professional footballer, obviously, but I didn't receive any adequate messaging or education or awareness. The only thing I got genuinely was when the fun stops stop. And that's not sufficient to deal with a public health issue. And football has a responsibility. The FA won't touch gambling with a barge pole anymore. They had, they had a gambling partner. They no longer have it, but they seem to have this neutral stance where they won't support uh, charities or campaigning organisations. But I think we need... Uh, football and especially football clubs to recognize this is harming people in their communities to the point of suicide as you say 500 people in this country every year taking their own life because of a preventable illness that's a, that's a complete shame on our nation and, and football is complicit I'm, so, I'm sorry to be quite strong and passionate mm. about this but football is complicit in that harm and it's either blind to this harm or you know it is complicit and I think unfortunately it's the latter. We'll talk about that complicity in a, in a minute. But Kieran, I want to bring you in here because it's disappointing to hear what James says 
about the PFA because the PFA, as you've discussed, have been quick to highlight the numbers of players who get themselves into financial difficulties after football because of gambling, haven't they? Yes, it's just not gambling, uh, but it's a, it's a collection of things which I think contribute towards footballers' uh, monetary problems. Um, and you know, Dean Hammond, has, uh, I think, was very uh, open last week when he was saying that what do you do? You've got time on your hands and you don't know how to how to deal with it. Um, the, the PFA have a responsibility towards their members. It is a trade union and it should be acting on, on behalf of the members. And, and I think it should be uh, going to clubs and saying, you are not looking after our, our members by, by making them so exposed to the gambling industry. We're fully aware that when, when a new gambling sponsor comes around, they want the players to, to buy into the, the brand and therefore they'll, they'll set them up with a VIP account and you know, they'll, they'll give them a, a, a line of credit and that line of credit goes very quickly uh, and that's when the problem starts and, and it takes a long time to turn it around. I, I don't really know how to ask this question, James, without getting in whatever I ask you in whatever format, open question, closed question, we probably haven't got time for you to answer it fully, but the relationship between betting companies and football is already toxic and it's not getting any better, is it? No, toxic is, is the perfect word for it. I think it's we, we reached saturation point a long time ago um, and I don't see it getting much better for all the noise and obviously I'm involved in a campaign called The Big Step which tries to end gambling advertising and sponsorship and football and it does feel like sometimes we achieve things but the reality is I'll watch a football match tonight and for 90% of the game a gambling brand will be visible so we, we have a long long way to go I think it's 36 clubs in the Premier League and Championship have a listed official gambling sponsor or partner, not to mention, obviously, the EFL and its Skybet relationship. And, you know, football, as I said earlier, football is blind to this harm and it forgets the fact that a large percentage of this money comes from a small percentage of players. So it's estimated 60% of profits come from just 5% of players in the, for the online gambling industry. So this isn't an industry that's built on sustainability. Unfortunately, this is an industry that is in, that addiction is integral to their business model. And that's the money that's going from communities back into football clubs. And that's, in my opinion, that's not sustainable. It's not. It's completely against the ethos of what football clubs and football clubs well-rooted in their community should be about. And the, the problem is as well, because I'll be watching the same football games as you, you become immune to the other. You, it, it just becomes visual no, noise in a sense, doesn't it? And then suddenly you'll see, you'll see electronic adverts in different languages, which you assume are for for gambling companies and some of the times you see a shirt front sponsor for a company you've never heard of and you just have to assume they're a betting company I mean there's so many Far Eastern for example people like Manbet for example who you've never heard of here who've suddenly plastered all over Premier League football clubs Indeed, and, and many of them don't even accept UK customers, so they're exclusively using this Premier League shirt space to market their products to a wider global audience. And you know what? What have we become? I remember the days when football used to promote stuff that 
produce stuff, that made stuff, that contributed to the UK economy. These companies don't provide anything to the UK economy, but once again, they're just complying with regulation. Regulation has allowed for companies based in the Philippines to put their brand on the front of a shirt in Burnley. It's like these these things, um, yeah, it's regulation that needs to change. And you, you say about being immune, I, I take the point entirely. Like It's completely normalised when we watch football. We're just used to seeing it. But I will say there are people that do get triggered by yeah, that. Absolutely. And there's people that will see one of those betting companies and be like, oh, I've not used that one yet. I've already tried 20 others and tried to self-exclude myself. And every single time that does get, that makes it harder for people when the relapses happen and addiction just uh, carries on. But, but I guess, Kieran, here's the problem. In a time of financial crisis, for a lot of clubs, for the FA, for the Premier League, it's only gambling companies along with countries, if you like, who can afford to sponsor Premier League football clubs now? Uh, Perhaps now is the case, but this gambling issue has been in the public domain for at least a decade, and we've done nothing. So when the times were good, the, 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 the football clubs were prepared to take the gambling company's money. And now that the times are bad, and we, we know that the industry is suffering as a result of the pandemic, what the clubs are, are using, and, and also I think the EFL's complicit in this, they're saying, oh, we need more evidence. And, and it's very much like the situation we had in the early 1970s when the, the big tobacco companies were saying, oh, we're not sure there's a problem with tobacco and, and cancer. Uh, we need more evidence. And everything's down down to pushing the problem further down the line. Um, gambling's been around for a long time, but don't think anybody, you know, James isn't asking for prohibition. He's asking for common sense. And unfortunately, the football industry isn't prepared to accept that. And James, this may sound like an odd question, but has coronavirus affected the issue, not just financially, but because a lot of players now have more time on their own than perhaps they would have done before? Yeah, I think I use the term perfect storm. I think coronavirus and lockdown has probably exacerbated that even more so. I, I know myself, I'm relatively stable in my recovery. I, I never got any support or treatment for my addiction, which is quite rare in itself, but I, I need it now. I, I'm, I'm struggling with like everybody else is. And when you're trying to deal with an addiction, like if, if I honestly was still gambling during this, I, dread to think i don't even as drastic as it sounds i don't know if i'd still be here because i can't imagine what it was like to just be at home not doing very much with financial woes and yeah and you know we talk about the football industry suffering during the pandemic well i'll tell you one industry that hasn't the gambling industry Mm. and their profits are soaring and that once again comes from people like me and i think it's it's time when we start looking at when when you've got a pandemic proof industry like that that's using football as a product to further their profits uh we need to start thinking about how can that industry put money into football without exposing kids to gambling advertising Hmm. The other thing as well is that football doesn't even make money, at least in horse racing. They charge a levy to the betting. At least horse racing can argue, rightly or wrongly, that the betting companies are putting some money back into the sport. That that argument doesn't exist in football because football is, football itself is take, making no money from the gambling industry. It makes no sense. No, the only money that it gets from the gambling industry is obviously advertising and sponsorship revenue. Yeah. Which, which in itself is just a form of uh, increasing its or, uh, a customer base. And I think uh, it has been mooted before a fair return uh, levy, but it was obviously dismissed straight away by the gambling industry. But 
maybe it's time for government to consider alternative funding options for the gambling industry in sport. We, we know that public pressure is mounting on this issue and it'd be nice to have solutions because nobody wants football clubs to collapse. Nobody wants to stop people having a bet. But as I keep saying, nobody wants kids growing up thinking that they've got to have a bet on to watch the football. Do you think there'll come a time in five or 10 years time when we'll look back and say, I can't believe that there was gambling adverts because in exactly the same way that we look at smoking in public places or uh, advertising for alcohol at football or, or tobacco at football? I really hope so. Um, I I do worry that even in 10 years, looking back with hindsight, we'll probably still be dealing with the damage that was caused by this relationship. And, you know, we, you do watch back sport with tobacco advertising. It just looks uh, incredible. We created a generation of people denying that there was an inherent risk to an activity. And I think football is doing that now. And, you know, there are positive noises. The Gambling Act review is currently happening. Um, and, you know, there might be a time not not so distant at all in a couple of years' time where we don't see um, gambling-based shirt sponsorship at the very least. But until we have that day where there's no gambling promotion visible in front of young fans, we'll, um, we'll keep campaigning. Brilliant. brilliant. Well, well, thank you so much uh, for, for all of this, James. It really has been quite illuminating for me because I'm, I'm a person that, that doesn't really understand gambling because I don't do it. If, if, if there'll be people listening to the show who might have some issues and they might be now sort of saying, well, what can I do next? Because I think I might have a gambling problem. Is there anywhere they can go? Is there any advice you can give to them? You know, is there anywhere they can reach out to for, uh, that, that can help? Yeah, definitely. The first thing I'd say is um, don't think that this is all your own fault. Like, Don't put all the responsibility on your own shoulders because that can cause more harm, more addiction and reach out to people. Be honest with yourself. If it's causing you to change your behavior, if it's causing you to uh, treat people differently start to reassess that and be honest with the people closest to you and there are practical tools out there if you if you search talk ban stop that will give you some really good advice on how to block gambling and how to stop by self-excluding and there's also the nhs gambling clinics in the north and in london as well which uh, provide specialist addiction treatment so my message is that there is hope and there is help don't despair gambling doesn't have to define you Brilliant. Thank you so much, James. We really appreciate your your assistance and, and your insight into this. My pleasure. Thank you. Do you know, Kieran, for the first time in my life, probably, there are a couple of moments here when I, I really didn't know what to say to James, uh, basically. I thought his honesty was fresh and his, his anger, but I think there are people in football who need to be made to listen to that interview, don't they? I think they do, and I think they will be the people who will choose not to listen because there's there's a lot of cloth ears in the sport at present. Um, there's a lot of denial that uh, that football and the gambling industry, which which do have close links, um, and, and as J- James rightly said, you know, he's, he's not out to, to stop gambling. He's he's out to stop that initial addiction that 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 the lines are far too blurred you know at times when i'm watching uh you know i'm I'm watching sky i'm not sure whether i'm watching a show or whether i'm watching an advert because you've got the same people you've got the people who are presenting the shows are now the voice pieces of the adverts for some of the gambling companies and it and and it's too insidious 
Um, and, and there's too many of the adverts. Uh, and as for the sponsorship, I mean, you, you rightly said, you know, it, could, could we name where the countries are that these gambling companies are based? Because you know, 12 months ago, I, I hadn't heard of half of them. And I suspect once they stop their advertising, once somebody else comes in, you know, we, we'll, we'll forget them instantly, but that they will have done what they set out to do, which is to increase gambling awareness in Asia. Yeah, and uh, thank you for taking over with the last couple of questions, Kieran, because when I thought there was a technical fault, it turned out I'd accidentally dislodged the cable reaching for my cup of tea. (laughs) When it turned out that you could hear me and I could hear him, but I couldn't hear you talking anyway. But it's it's great. It was a great interview from James, and it must have been very tricky for him to be so open and honest. And hopefully, if there are people out there listening who have issues, they know there are places they can go to get help. Um, before we go, Kieran, uh, we ha- we have some news that I've, I was supposed to mention on the last couple of quiz because we're, we're going to have a little quiz, aren't we, on Sunday night? Uh, yes, uh, you know we're all in lockdown. Um, we've uh, we've not got a huge amount to do, and it will be uh, sort of the last twenty four hours before the match. You know, so we won't be talking to each other <laughs> on Monday or Monday night. That's for certain. Um, I've I've already been booked in to do a Palace podcast on the Tuesday night. So that could be really really painful for me. Which one? Um, But, yeah, so we we thought, you know, we we really appreciate all the feedback we get from the listeners. Uh, We know that you enjoyed the quiz uh, before Christmas. Um, You know, we we have been nominated by the FSA uh, for uh, for Fan Media of the Year, and and we're genuinely touched by it. So we thought we'd give a little bit back, uh, have the quiz. We'll, We'll try to get a few prizes. They'll, they they won't be significant. You know, I've got a new book coming out next week, for example. So you're more than welcome to to a, a copy of that or two. Um, but uh, it will just be nice to uh, have a see some of the faces of uh, of many of of the people that keep us on our toes, uh, and also have have made this show quite good fun for all concerned. Yeah, there are some decent prizes. Our our, our new host, uh, sponsors, Fugati, have uh, generously donated a, a decent prize, which is nice. Um, so as you say, it's not so much a quiz, Kieran. It's more a public plea for people to vote for us in the Football Supporters Association Awards. Well, if they'd like to do that as well, that's by pure yeah. coincidence, uh, because the deadline is on Monday. Uh, so you know, it's pure coincidence that we're having the quiz on the Sunday night. Yeah, well, it was fun. The last one was fun, and it, 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 this will be this will be fun as well. And we'll all we'll all get involved. And as you say, we couldn't do it after Monday. Which which Palace podcast are you doing? I noticed you ignored me when I asked you which Palace podcast you were doing. Oh, it's uh, is it Red and Blue Review. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah nice, nice voice. Um, uh, so yes, in the meantime, oh, oh, yeah, well, we'll have, we've got a pod on Sunday. Oh, it was a busy day Sunday. I was going to say, well, we'll see you before the big game on Monday night. Uh, in the meantime, it's questions time for our next pod. If you've got any issues you want to talk to us about that uh, we've discussed today, or any questions about any aspect of football violence, football violence, football, <laughs> football violence, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. And meantime, we will see you. Well, we'll see you Sunday, hopefully. Bye bye now. Bye-bye. The price of football. The price of football.